Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So welcome everyone to our uh, 2022 fall four foundations of the mindfulness retreat. Um, I start every retreat out about the same way that this is your retreat uh, to make of it what you will. Um, we integrate the eightfold path as a framework for everything we do in this sangha, including uh, our retreats. So. Um, the most important aspect of that as we're gathered as a Sangha and as you leave here, um, and some of you will be staying locally, some of you will be going back to uh, family situations, and as best as you can, um, maintain that framework of the Eightfold Path, in particular, right speech as best as you can. Um, try and be as quiet and still as you can uh, when you're not here. Um, I would strongly suggest to all of you to turn your cell phones off. Um, if you have to be available to someone, um, just answer your phone, but stay away from social media for a few days. It'll be here on Monday. Um, and so this is one thing I think I've been saying for how many, 50 retreats or so we've done so far. Um, the world is still going to be there for all of us on Monday, just like it is right now. You may be very different. And that difference will allow you to come back into the world in a way that is less entangled than it is today. Uh, and that's called progressing in the Dhamma. So each time you come to class, each time you come to retreat, each time you put in just a little bit of right effort, and meaning continue with your Dhamma practice, your concentration increases. And so these four foundations on mindfulness that we're going to dive in deep about this weekend uh, become ever more um, naturally manifest. In other words, you're not manipulating the Dhamma. You can't manipulate it into this moment. But your practice brings the Dhamma into this moment through these four foundations of mindfulness. And when I think about how Siddhartha taught this 2,600 years ago, this really incredibly simple teaching, it all it is, it's about be mindful of your breath, and then notice some very specific things as you start deepening that concentration. And that establishes these four foundations of mindfulness for everything else that we do in our lives. And that allows us, again, to be naturally disentangled. Uh oh, I gotta leave. Amazon just delivered something. What is it? No social media. Social media. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it allows us to be naturally, mindfully present for each and every moment of our lives. And I'm using that word naturally twice. I don't know how probably ever used it before. But it just means without any manipulation, without anything that I need to do in this moment. So I am out of this moment. When I'm resting in these four foundations of mindfulness, even if it's just for a breath or two, that's enough for us to touch what it means to be an awakened human being. And we simply build on that. So, um, again, I think Julia is the only one that hasn't been on a retreat with us, right? Mary Beth, you've been on retreats with us before. I haven't. That's right, Jennifer, you haven't. Um, so the only difference between our classes and our retreat is there's, there's going to be six of them over the next three days. 
the rest of it is basically the same. Um, but again, the opportunity that's here for our retreat um, is a little bit different when it's here in Frenchtown rather than we're all in residence um, at one Dharma Center that we're going to be in next summer. Again, so just do your best to maintain the um, the Sangha atmosphere and the, the, the refuge of the Sangha, even when we're not here as best you can. Um, and then this is really a very special retreat uh, for all of us. Um, we're going to be installing three new Dhamma teachers on this retreat. It's never before been done in history. <laughs> of course, nobody ever tried it before. Either. Of course, nobody ever wanted to try it before. Here we are. Um, Mary uh, Allen is here. She's going to be teaching our Sunday uh, session. Brian is sitting in the back. Uh, he's going to be teaching tomorrow morning session. And a friend of ours, Matteo, is going to be teaching tomorrow afternoon's session uh, from Scotland. So uh, it's really it's going to be very special that way. Does anybody have any questions or comments uh, about our retreat or what we're going to be doing here? If you all know what to expect. Okay. Um, so this is the four foundations of mindfulness retreat, meaning it's based on a sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. And in this sutta, the Buddha first teaches us the basic four foundations of mindfulness. And then he teaches us how to apply that in different um, themes and aspects of the Dhamma. But it's really an, a, a way of using our concentration to be mindfully aware of these things developing within ourselves. This really is one of the most important suttas the Buddha ever gave. And I think if I would ask you to notice one thing as we're going through this over six sessions is remember that this was taught 2,600 years ago, but how relevant it is today because the conditions in the world are the same today, exactly the same as they were 2,600 years ago. There is no substantive difference between how we, re, how, we, how we think about ourselves and how we think about the rest of the world. That has not changed or evolved or grown or become more spiritual, less spiritual, or anything else. It's just the same. We're dealing with the same human psyche that Siddhartha was 2,600 years ago as today. That's not good, bad, depressing, or enlightening. It's just, well, you could say it, it, it moves towards enlightening because it, it's an aspect of understanding the common human condition which is distraction rooted in self-loathing, meaning that in this moment, I need to be different than I am, or I need the world to be different than it is, or a combination of both of those. All of those lead to constant distraction. So the antidote or the resolution for constant distraction would be constant concentration. And that's really what Siddhartha awakened to, the need to be well concentrated. And then he realized that we couldn't just say, I want to be concentrated and be concentrated. And the why about why human beings aren't born well concentrated is a foolish question because there's no answer to it. The only reasonable answer is we are, or we aren't, we aren't, you know, we aren't born well concentrated. But so there's a path that this awakened human being taught to develop this concentration for the sole purpose to be present for this moment in my life. And in so doing, then each and every moment of my life is meaningful. 
It doesn't have to be colored one way or another by my own fabricated desires, by the need for me or the world or the people and events of the world to be different. My mind is calm and at peace. That's rooted in concentration and understanding. Excuse me. <clears throat> All right, we'll get started. The Satipatthana Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Kamasadama, where he addressed those assembled. I got 48 size print, but I still use 5X glasses. Friends, there are four frames of reference, four foundations of mindfulness that are required for the purification of all beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and regret, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for establishing the right method of practice, and for complete unbinding, complete unbinding from ignorance of four noble truths. And so the rest of this introductory paragraph points out the entire Dhamma. And so I'm just going to read it again, just with that in mind, just to make the point. Friends, there are four frames of reference, four foundations of mindfulness. That's all. There's only four foundations that an awakened human being taught for us to develop. These four foundations are required for the purification of all beings, including me and you, and for the overcoming of sorrow and regret, for the disappearance of pain and distress, and for establishing the right method of practice. And for complete unbinding from those views, ignorant of four noble truths that keep us, to keep us distracted towards constant eye-making. And then the Buddha asked the rhetorical question, what are these four? And we do this every time we meditate. Being mindful of the breath in the body, that's the first foundation of mindfulness. And we do it to begin our jhana practice, isn't it? It's the first thing we do. Being mindful of the breath in the body, determined and alert, and abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. Abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. What's the Buddha mean? He means that no matter what arises in our mind and passes away, to simply recognize it as a disturbance. It's either a feeling or a thought, or it's a thought attached to a feeling, meaning an emotion. And so no matter what it is, abandon craving and aversion to what is occurring. It might almost sound like the Buddha's talking about what's occurring out in the world, but he's not. He's talking about what's occurring within our minds. Because we find out very quickly in Dhamma practice that the only thing that we can change and the only thing we should ever hope to change is our own minds. Because as soon as we start thinking that we have to change something else or someone else or the world, we become saviors. And we're no longer seeking understanding. We're seeking to save. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. But we seek understanding rather than salvation. Number two, being mindful of feelings arising from the sixth sense base, our five physical senses and the sixth sense of our consciousness, right? The sixth sense base. Also determined and alert and abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. A feeling arises and passes away or a feeling arises and I have to grasp onto it and cling to it because it's my feeling and I'm using it to define me. Or it's a bad feeling and I don't want it. Or it's a feeling attached to a thought. It's a bad memory. Or a bad projecting into tomorrow. But all of it is distracting. 
or it's a thought about the brand new car I'm going to get tomorrow or the piece of chocolate cake I might get as soon as that bald-headed guy shuts up. All of it is a distraction, isn't it, from this moment? What's occurring in this moment? A bald-headed guy is talking to you. <laughs> Are you laughing at the bald or the, <laughs> the two? Because I'm seeing two and three heads, so maybe it's... A, it's really nice. I mean, it's nice to have 40 people that are <laughs> Everything is occurring in here. That's all we're talking about is the way we're thinking, but how to gain control of our thinking. And it makes sense that that would be rooted in something that we are in complete control of, our own concentration. This is how to do it. Being mindful of thoughts arising from the sixth sense base. Everything comes from this sixth sense base, right? Also determined and alert. Determined and alert for what? Determined and alert to be abandoning craving to recognize it, craving and aversion to what is occurring. It's always abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. The three defilements that the Buddha teaches are included here. And it's the only three defilements that we have to be concerned about because it covers the entire gambit of human behavior. When our minds are distracted, we're driven by two, thought, two sides of the same coin in everything we do. Craving and aversion, right? Aversion is just craving that something be different or less. And craving is just wanting more of something. More of me, more of you, more of the world, more cake, more cars, more sex, more golf, Kevin. It, no matter what, and it's never enough, is it? For, this, for some reason, I've been talking to a few people about um, many people that win the lottery within a year or two, they're dead broke again because they simply can't stand having it. It doesn't relate to their view of self. So they can't get rid of it fast enough. And it, I mean, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of people like that. I'd like to try it. But... Number four, being mindful of the present quality of mind, the present quality of mind. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You hear me say it at the end of every meditation session. Be at peace with your mind. Why not? It's your mind. Be at peace with your mind because you know that no matter what is occurring in your mind, it's impermanent. It will pass. So even if it's sadness or anguish or fear or doubt or joy or bliss or happiness or confusion or anything else, it's temporary. And as long as we don't create an identity by this one thought, I'm good to go. But as soon as I do, I'm distracted. I'm caught up in my own web of ignorance, always trying to maintain something that can't be maintained, a fabricated self. But what I can be is who and what I am, a human being, a six property person, right? Earth, wind, fire, and water, we're all made up of the elements. We all occupy space, and space occupies us. There's space within our bodies for things to, to move through, for us to eat food and breathe through. That's all space property, right? Our eyeballs use the space property to be fitted properly in our heads. Earth, wind, fire, water, the space property, and the sixth property of consciousness. That is all that, that, that constitutes a human being, but it's all that ever can constitute a human being, no matter what we want to be. And when our minds are distracted, when they're not rooted in these four foundations of mindfulness, we will become anything. And we can become anything that we want to be in our own minds, but that's the problem. 
because none of that is ever going to be manifest in the world. Or if it does, it won't be enough. I might have a 10 year plan to be the richest man in the world. And when I get it, it won't be enough. Or I'll be so distracted by my money that I'll have to use it to play a game on everybody else in the world. I can't get through it fast enough. Or I just become distracted. And I see this in many people that um, people that have, um, I don't know the right way to characterize it. it it's not uh, it, more money than you know what to do with, but that's not really the, the, the just a, a whole, a whole lot of money, right? More money than you really ever have to think about. But a lot of times that money becomes a huge distraction. It is almost, um, it's almost not, you almost can't overcome it because that that persona is something that you that you wanted to achieve you thought you should achieve and it's yours and now all that you can do is use it to continue to distract now we have a couple of friends that recognize even that and have worked their way out of it but i can tell you it, it and it's not that you know we're all i'm lucky because i only got 18 dollars in the bank that's not the point it is not to be caught up in greed aversion rooted in deluded thinking no matter what is going on with us so we could be someone with $18 in the bank and the rent, the rent is due tomorrow. But this Dhamma will teach you how to deal with that with a calm and peaceful mind. And so you'll be better able to know what to do next. But this Dhamma won't put tomorrow's rent in your pocket. But it will make you better prepared to live in the world in a very successful way without getting caught up in the things of the world. So again, just to go over that fourth foundation of mindfulness, because this is the quality of mind that we're looking to develop in Dhamma practice. Being mindful of the present quality of mind, determined and alert while abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. So no matter what is occurring with this present quality of mind, I am no longer attached to it or clinging to it or reacting to it. But if I do, what do I do? Well, the first thing I should do is judge myself harshly, beat myself up, do all the other things that we've, we've used to make ourselves better that failed and realize in this case, it doesn't work. In the Dhamma, we don't judge ourselves at all. We only recognize when we're outside of these four foundations of mindfulness and outside of the framework of the Eightfold Path, take a breath and we're back in it. We've united a mind in our body. We've become a six property self person, a six property person and nothing else. In that breath, in the next breath, we might be right back into what our fabricated delusion is. And that's fine because now we know how to get out of it. And we know in the next moment we can take a breath. And if we lose our minds again, we can take another breath. But we also know from our direct practice that every time we take a breath and unite our mind and our body, we're increasing our concentration just that much. And so we're, deep, we're deepening these four foundations of mindfulness that we continue to stand on for this reference in this moment. Does anybody have any questions about that? Or, or questions about where you might think we're going with that? What does it mean to establish these four foundations of mindfulness and not be distracted by me or anything else? What I happens with our needs? How do our needs get met when we're not always addressing our needs? I, I, How is it? Yes, please. Um, I just wanted to like reiterate what I'm hearing just to see if I understand it correctly. 
Uh, so the goal is to meet moment by moment experience just as it is with enough concentration that when, when we craving an aversion arises, we recognize it and can abandon it by coming back to our breath in our body and staying grounded in what's present and not having to identify with the, the story of those fabrications. Yes, that, that's exactly it. Our retreat is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Drake, that is, I, I'm, I'm being a little silly, but that is the whole point. And the whole, the whole Dhamma re, resolves itself in that point. That in this moment, I am not taking anything personal. And because I'm not taking anything personal, I am fully present for whatever this moment offers me, which means for the first time in my life, I am living my life fully simply because I found a way to be present for it. And in that moment, in that, in that um, present moment, refined mindfulness, there is nothing to bump up against or to resist because it's just in this moment. And so no matter what might be occurring, it could be something harrowing or it could be something uh, terribly sad. I might just have found I just lost a loved one. I'll be, I'll be appropriately sad, but I won't lose my mind over needing that to be different. I understand that. And so that that is one example, but it, it 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 is an example of maintaining this concentration and this refined mindfulness over any and all situations that arise. But the, I, I also should point out right here: this isn't some kind of um, ag aggressive warrior-like stance that we have to take with our dharma practice or as we're approaching the world. It's a very gentle approach. Our Dhamma practice itself becomes, becomes an example of an awakened quality of mind. So you, you haven't heard me, I mean, I'm sure you heard me say this at least once, Drake, uh, but almost every class and almost every time I'm talking to people just one-on-one, -on -one, I, I use these words, be very gentle with yourself, because that's the key to everything. It's also the key to the cessation of eye-making. There's nothing harsher for me in this moment to insist they me or the world be any different than it is. Why? Because it can't be. That's all. It doesn't need, the, this moment doesn't need any other explanation, does it? Because it's what's occurring. And if I don't need any explanation, meaning I don't have to color this moment or who I am in this moment, then I am fully present and fully, um, um, I'm fully allowing myself to be present with it, with what is occurring in this moment, no matter what it is. What does that mean? What I'm talking, what am I talking about? I'm not, I'm talking about not ha having no, um, no prerequisites in my mind for this moment. Does everybody follow that? It's a little bit of a, Julius shake your head so you can go, you're done. Meaning we're not, I'm not bringing myself into this moment anymore. I'm not coloring this moment by a previous thought of attaching. Imagine, because, and I think most of you, if not all of you, Julia described this about the other day about, well, I might, if you want to talk about it, you can, I won't say how it, how it came up, of just being fully present with someone and how at, in the beginning, I could seem almost magical and miraculous because you're fully present with another human being, sometimes for the first time in your life, or at least for the first time that you're recognizing it. And so I'm going to drag it out of Julie. What happened? With a patient? Yeah. Well, this has happened uh, frequently. So Julie I is a nurse. 
I forget which time, but um, I'm at there. I can't. Yeah, if this. Uh, wait, are you talking about the time in the rehab or the home? In the in the rehab. Oh, we're, okay. You're talking so, about how how calm you you notice you were. Yes. And you, we had a patient who was detoxing off opiates, and uh, she was um like 21 years old, I think, and uh, she didn't want to talk to any other nurse but me. <laughs> the other nurses were like slamming doors um aggravating the situation this this uh chaos was happening for three hours when that dragged on a little too long than needed but they uh it just seemed like there was just yelling back at this patient rather than just looking at her and just being like you know I hear you uh so yeah there was just chaos for longer than needed in this um, place. But then I took her into a room and she stopped yelling. She sat down. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's like, hmm, okay. Cause you know, I wasn't yelling back. I wasn't trying to prove something to her or telling her what she was doing wrong. I was just, yeah, I, I see why you're, why you're upset, you know? Yeah, and it calmed her down. Mm -hmm. You were mindfully present. And I barely talked. That was the thing. You know, I barely talked. Which is an aspect of noble silence. Yeah. I mean, noble silence isn't just deciding you're not going to talk. Noble silence is informed by right speech, meaning you know in this moment there's nothing useful to say just to be calm with someone and let them know you're there. And I mean, I'm I'm fortunate that I, I see a lot of people in that condition. And most, you know, you, nobody's going to remember anything you say in that shape anyway. They just don't. They're not capable of it. But what they're capable of is feeling someone who is just present there. And it always calms them down. And how you mentioned, like, if you lose your mind, it's okay. I can get it right back, like right here. And like that, that situation reminded me of like, you know, she might've lost her mind back there, but when we just sat in the room, isolated from everything, like she got her mind back even though she was withdrawing so it was like quite a night and day difference it really is yeah you've heard me say this before a friend of mine years ago he had nine nervous breakdowns brother ken and i still remember something he said it's okay to lose your mind just get another one (laughs) he was right this next section is how to do it it's called the breath in the body and again these simple instructions anybody can do this And how does one remain mindful of the breath in the body in and of itself? It means that we're not, we're not fabricating or, or manipulating our breath in any way, which also some of you may have been involved in practices where we do manipulate our breath and that's fine. It's not what we do here. However we find our breath when we start a meditation session is how we find our breath. It doesn't need to be short, long, deep or shallow. It doesn't matter. But however you find your breath is how you find your breath. And how does one remain mindful of the breath in and of itself? Finding a a secluded spot, the shade of a tree or an empty hut, sitting erect with legs crossed in front, placing attention on the breath. That's it. Anybody can do this. Find a secluded space, meaning quiet. You want to be disentangled physically from the world as best you can and as quiet of a place as you can. Some of you may find the quietest places out in the van. Mm-hmm. for years and years and years mm-hmm. and it still worked out there didn't it still 
It's getting yeah. a little chilly, but it's <laughs> <laughs> that's right effort, by the way. Yeah, it said if you look up right effort, you see Ram's picture. But all of ours play talk. The Buddha continues, remaining mindful of the breath, right? In breath and out breath. Remaining mindful of the breath, breathe in and breathe out. All the Buddha is saying is notice that you're breathing. That's it. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. Noticing it. Not just breathing, but noticing that you're breathing. Notice the in-breath and the out-breath. It's important to notice the, the, whole, the entire cycle. Because what you're experiencing in that entire cycle is an entire life cycle, too. Our lives arise and they pass away. And they do so in a breath, don't they? Jhana meditation is both metaphor and a direct living example of your life in that moment. And its purity and the purity of your life in that moment is found in that pure breath, isn't it? Without any coloring to the breath. The breath in and of itself is both metaphor and a practical experience of an awakened human being in that moment. Remaining mindful of the breath, breathe in and breathe out, continuing. Mindful of the breath, long or short, breathe in and breathe out. This is in, I put this in specifically for those that have been involved in modern Buddhist practices that teach a very exaggerated type of meditation as something that the Buddha taught. And when you hear these words, you realize the Buddha never taught anything like that. He just taught to treat the breath as you find it. Training yourself to be sensitive to the breath and calming any bodily fabrication. By simply being sensitive to the breath, noticing my in-breath and my out-breath, these bodily fabrications, these agitations that I'm holding within my mind by that, that fierce grip that I have on each thought now starts to fall away. I'm calming my own bodily fabrications, the things that I've created about myself that take constant attention, constant attention, constant stress to always be in the forefront of my mind about who I am and what I am and what's occurring in the world and how I need it to be different. In this moment, it's just me, me and my breath. And by the way, the only thing that you've ever experienced throughout your life is you and your breath. Everything else is what you attach to it. Right? Everything else is just your story. And I'm not talking about when you had a good meal like we just had. That was a real experience of the meal. But anything else that I add to that, like, gee, that, you know, the, well, the, the ice, what I had, I, iced tea or something. Well, that could have been colder. I mean, just the, the, thin, the silly things that I might be using to distract myself from a meal that was already in the past. Instead of not even consider it. I'm in this moment. I'm teaching a Dhamma class. I should be present for you, shouldn't I? I owe it to you to be present, to practice the Dhamma so that I can be present for you, don't I? Right? And I wouldn't be doing my job if I, if I wasn't at least capable of being present for you. This is true in every, every moment of our lives. And so you could say in a very gentle way that you're robbing yourself of your own life by not being present for it. And the reason why you should be very gentle with yourself with that realization is because you had nothing to do with it until now. Now you know the difference. Now it's up to you. And if you decide not to, if you decide you like living in a distracted world, entangled in the world, that's fine. Most people do, by the way. Most people would not develop the Dhamma in this way. 
Remember, the Buddha said, I teach this Dharma for those with just a speck of dust in their eye. What it really means is people that want to do this. That's all. And we're not special because we're doing it. We're certainly not saved, are we? Except from what I think is a wasted life. And in that way, we're our own saviors. But we're only saving ourselves for what we are. There's really not salvation in that, is there? There's just waking up. That's all we're doing. We're realizing what it means to be a human being, ardent and alert and mindful while putting it, putting aside distress in relation to the world. That's what we do in each and every moment of our lives. And it becomes natural, it becomes automatic. In the beginning, it might seem like we're batting away flies all the time, meaning the world keeps coming in. But pretty soon, it just quiets down and it becomes still. And we experience it in each and every meditation session. Training yourself to be sensitive to the breath and calming any bodily, any bodily fabrication. Ever mindful, calming the body with each in-breath and out-breath. The body just naturally calms while we're mindful of each in-breath and our out-breath. Remaining mindful of the breath in the body, mindful of the breath in the body, the in-breath and the out-breath, the arising and the passing away of phenomena with regard to the body. That's life arising and passing away, isn't it? It's how each and every cell in my body arises and passes away. In that one breath that I just took, that we just took, millions of cells arose and passed away. That's human life. That's how human life is maintained, isn't it? At the cellular, the cellular level, there is, um, I can't think of the word now. There's a cellular respiration. That's the right word. There's a type of cellular respiration that is occurring concomitant with our own breath. In other words, again, this is an example of what's occurring in our cells at each moment. That's what our cells are doing to keep themselves alive, to reinvigorate themselves. And again, millions of them come into existence within our own body, within our own minds, within our own breath and die in each and every moment of our life. That's human life. And we are a living example of that, of cellular respiration. But so is everything else on the planet. And that doesn't mean we're all one thing. It just means we're playing the same game. And what's that game called? Impermanence. It's what Kandana got in that very first teaching that the Buddha taught. Everything in my mind is, is impermanent. Most importantly, the thoughts that I hope to be permanent, including what I thought I needed, what I was conditioned to believe I needed to, to live in the world, which was formed by the time I was 13 years old. Same for most people, or maybe just a little bit beyond that. I'm saying 13 for me because that's when I took my first drink and a drug. So that's where I, when I stopped growing and, and started conditioning my mind to what I needed to be. And that wouldn't have had it. They didn't have a chance to change until I first stopped drinking. And then about 10 years later, they'll actually address what was going on in my mind. And again, just to make the point, I wouldn't have gotten to that point if I didn't first stop drinking, would I? And, and that's true for my case and any addict's case, but it's also true for anyone who's not willing to give up what they're addicted to thinking about. 
And sometimes it's just how wonderful they are because all the good works they do in the world. Salvation is just a distraction in that case. The Buddha says, being mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, the arising and the passing away of phenomena with regards to the world is in this way, one remains mindful internally and externally, mindful of what's going on here and there, mindful internally and externally with regards to the body. My mind is now united in its body. Internally and externally, it's here. And it's staying here. Why? Because I've established these four foundations of mindfulness for my mind and my body. With no self-reference in that moment. What's <laughs> going on? Excuse me. With no self-reference, calmly noticing there is a body. That's all. What does that line mean? Calmly noticing there is a body. There is a body. I have a human life. I have a body. There's nothing special about it, is there? There's nine billion other ones, as far as I know. Right? So why do I think this body has to be so damn special? So damn special that it had to be different than the one I was given that I was born with. I thought it was reasonable to want to be different. So much so that I was so afraid and confused by not being able to be different and all the other things that I thought I should be and couldn't be that I drowned it away and I smoked it away and I snorted it away for a while. But again, what was I doing? It's a, it's a disease that has affects many people, that kind of addiction. But we're all addicted to our own thoughts. We're all addicted to what allows us to compensate for not being more or not being less in the world. It's all a distraction. And as the mind continues to deepen concentration, the need for distraction falls away. The compulsion for distraction falls away. Why? Because in this moment, I have control of my mind. And then I just lost it. And I have it back again. And so that's Dhamma practice. When we lose it, we know how to get it back. And that ability to, to recognize that I've lost my mind and bring it back quickly is established through the eightfold path, integrating all eight factors. And again, this is what we're going to be talking about as we continue. Remaining independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Concentration is the foundation that supports refined minds. These are my notes here. Concentration is the foundation that supports refined mindfulness. Being mindful of what is occurring in relation to the Eightfold Path is refined mindfulness. In other words, refined mindfulness is in this moment holding in mind each factor of the Eightfold Path as a framework and guidance for my life. Now, that doesn't mean that with each moment of our, of our lives, we have to recall all eight factors. That's what ongoing Dhamma practice is. And so we gradually start integrating these factors because of the way that we teach it here and because of the way that we, well, because of the way we teach, teaching the, the, the suttas themselves, but also, and just as important, how we run our classes and our discussions afterwards. And also, I would say how we run our retreats. Again, our retreats aren't silent retreats. They're framed by the Eightfold Path so that, that 
outside of our Dhamma sessions, we're talking about the Dhamma, but in relation to right speech, we're actually practicing the Dhamma on our retreats. We're not ignoring them by pra practicing some kind of fabricated thing that we call noble silence. And I, again, I'm not putting down silent retreats. They never did anything for me, and I did many of them, but they work for some people. That's not what our practice is, so we don't use it. There's no way to develop the Dhamma in silence. So we use right speech, right action, right livelihood, and we are, and we experience that during our retreats as well. Being mindful of the breath in the body is the foundation of developing understanding of an ego personality and its relation to the distraction of stress. Being mindful of the breath in the body interrupts outer focus, clinging condition thinking and begins to quiet the mind with directed inner mindfulness. Again, just uniting the mind and the body. Being mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath brings mindfulness to the arising and passing away of all phenomena. In other words, as we start to understand the impermanence of our breath, of our thoughts, of our, of our body, and our own impermanence in this world as a, having a human life, and coming to, to the grips, to, I mean the grips, coming to an understanding. There's nothing gripping about it. It's just an understanding that, yes, I have a human life. It begins at one point that I, I don't know anything about, and it ends at another point that I don't know anything about. But in the middle, I can know everything I need to know about this moment. And that's the only thing I can ever know everything there is to know about anything, is what's occurring in this moment. But in that moment, I get to live my life. So if I'm, if I'm worried about being 67 and half blind and, and a tad gimpy, well, I'm not going to be having much of a life, am I? But what I can do is, ad is address the things that are going on in me in a reasonable way and then get on with my life and do the best I can. And it's like I, 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 I <laughs> in about a year and a half, I ended up with a fourth primary position. And it's not because they're not great. I'm a little bit difficult of a patient. Um, and every one of them, uh, they're all they're all really very good. There was mostly was the office that I changed. But anyway, they all um, uh, kind of interviewed me or examined me in the same way. And they always got to the point, looking at me, a 67-year-old man that looks kind of beat up, that they found out that I live along with a dog. And they immediately figured, this guy's got to be despondent. And they started asking me questions that I know were geared towards finding out if I'm suicidal. And such as, you know, do you have any trouble getting up in the morning? Do you find yourself being angry? I, I mean, I know, the, I know the pitch. And I said, I know what you're saying. I appreciate it. I said, believe me, suicide is the farthest thing from my mind. I said, you may not know from looking at me, but this moment in my life is more meaningful and, and wonderful than I've ever experienced. And three of them looked at me like I was crazy. The last one said, wow. And so I said, I think you're going to be my doctor. <laughs> but I was telling the truth, the, the, the truth at that moment. And I don't, I don't believe that I'm, that I can say that honestly, but I can. You know, I used to think that old getting old was really gonna suck, no matter how good it was. You know, just just getting old's gotta suck. Yeah, I get those questions too every time I, I walk into the doctor's office. Yeah, they want to know. They, they give you this list. They have to. But, yeah. you know, are, are you depressed? You know. Yeah. And they, yeah, and they seem to think that this is this is like the normal thing for yeah. old age. Yeah, well, they, they, two of them, one, they, they said, do you have any trouble sleeping? I said, yeah, I have a lot of pain. I said, okay, we'll give you, two of them want to give me Ambien. I said, I didn't ask for a sleeping pill. I said, I didn't even ask you to help me sleep. 
but that's how they, you know. But I again, I every doctor has been sincere. I appreciate the question, and I, I don't take any offense at it. But it's interesting that that modern medicine has a hard time comprehending, you know, somebody who's just at peace with who they are. You know, it, it, I mean, it, it, what was that, Jen? Modern medicine can't handle sex yeah. and death. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they can't. They really can't. But again, it, 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 they're 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 charged to not really right. and, yeah and exactly. it, i can understand how i my one of my orthopedic surgeons he's just a wonderful guy but he's very very myopic on one thing and you know i knew that so i, had, I looked at other specialists because he was but that's getting yeah. way off of this yeah. that's just me being well concentrated and realizing i should take control of my own health which we all should be doing anyway so. <laughs> mm-hmm. um Again, my words. Notice that there is no specialness or applied emphasis attached to the normal breath cycle. It's just our breath. And then what these are the Buddha's words. I'm just using them here. When, when walking, be mindful of walking. When standing, be mindful of standing. When sitting, be mindful of sitting. When lying down, be mindful of lying down. And then the Buddha says, in any function, any of those, be mindful that there is a body. So again, we don't walking meditation is not something the Buddha taught. It's not something I suggest. Your meditation should be done on your cushion. But I'm all for mindful walking. It's good to be mindful of your walking. Be mindful that your feet are touching the ground or the, you know, the, the birds are singing, whatever else is going on. That's part of practice. But being mindful of walking is not Dhamma practice. It's a consequence of Dhamma practice. So if you find that you're distracted while you're, while you're walking, Take a breath and recognizing, recognize that your Dhamma practice will bring in the ability to be ever more mindful while you're walking or driving or standing or sitting or lying down or anything else, right? But it's not yet, mindful walking is not a substitute, a substitute for meditation. When lying down, be mindful of lying down and any function, be mindful that there is a body, not a big deal. When going about looking this way and that, be fully mindful, again, Whatever your light, whatever your eyes are light on, all that you have to do in this moment is to be fully mindful. And if there's a piece of chocolate cake, okay, keep looking around. When carrying a bowl or a cloak, be fully mindful. So that's in reference to how the original monks and nuns lived their lives. And it was an important direction because in the original Sangha, you got up every morning, you meditated, you did whatever else you needed to do in the morning, and you took your bowl and your, your robe and you went out into the town and you got your food for the day. And so the Buddha is saying, even when you go out into the world, when you're out collecting your livelihood, when you're at work, in essence, be fully mindful. So the Buddha, again, he's not teaching that this is only a practice that we can do in a monastery or only on our cushion. When you go out in the world, when you go out into the world with an empty bowl, try to fill it up, be fully mindful. When eating, drinking, or savoring food, be fully mindful. When eliminating waste, be fully mindful. When walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, walking, talking, or silent, be fully mindful, no matter what we're doing. Then the Buddha says, if we can be mindful in this way, one will remain mindful of the breath in the body, the in-breath and the out-breath. It's really all we're doing. 
while recognizing fabrications. The Buddha continues, in this way, one remains mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, the arising and the passing away of the body, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Imagine that, having that liberation to take a breath and not have that breath in our thoughts being clinging to anything in the world. Have you ever done that? Every one of you has done it. Every time you've taken a mindful breath, every time you are aware, mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, you are doing just this. And so Dhamma practice is something you've, all, all, you've already done and you've done it over and over again. The rest of practice is just recognizing and building on that four foundations of mindfulness to bring into your um, Dhamma practice, practice experience the rest of what we'll be talking about on this retreat. In this way, one remains mindful of the breath and the body, the arising and the passing away of the body, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Just as a person with good eyesight, emptying a bag full of mixed grains, would know that this is wheat, this is rice, these are beans, these are sesame seeds. In this same way, one remains mindful from the soles of their feet to the top of their head. Encased in skin, there is hair, nails, teeth, tendons, bones, marrow, organs, feces, phlegm, urine, sweat, tears, saliva, mucus, and fluid in the joints. Why is the Buddha, the Buddha pointing the Buddha, the Buddha pointing this out? from 2,600 years ago, because he's pointing out the ordinariness. We all are made up of this stuff. Some of the stuff that we'd rather not recognize or think about, but it makes all of us up. We're all just like this. None of us are unique. None of us are different except in our own minds in any, in any substantive way. But we're not all one thing either, are we? The Buddha teaches us to recognize our sovereignty that is where our true self lies, right? An individual human being without the need to be anything other than a human being is an awakened, fully mature human being. It's what we're learning to do. In this way, one is mindful of the four elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element. The four elements that comprise a human being are all impermanent. Be mindful of the impermanence of the body to develop dispassion. If I know that this, this body arises and passes away with my breath, why would I be so enamored with it? It's just here for my use in this moment. And I don't know if I got another one. So why should I be too concerned about it? It may come. So let me do my best to prepare for myself for that, that occurrence. You know, in my case, I'll take a few meds and I'll, I'll pay next month's bills. So I got a place to live, et cetera. But that's all. I don't need to be any more distracted by just by except just simply taking care of the things I need to take care of. But there's no I making in that. There's no me in it. It's just practically living in the world, isn't it? Or it can be. Then the Buddha reminds us, if left unattended, right? We're all going to end here. If left unattended, of course this this. <laughs> A corpse this decays quickly. Friday night. It becomes bloated and infested. It is picked at by birds and dogs and other creatures. Eventually, nothing is left but dust. That's where we're all going. Well, we'll we probably won't end up quite that way, but we're all going to end up just like that. 
So why take any of this personally? No matter what we do, no matter what we acquire, no matter what fabrications we attach to ourselves, or no matter what we gain in uh, physical stuff, none of it is us. And that's proof by we can't take any of it with, we, with us. When we die, whatever we are is gone. So why not be present for this moment instead of wasting this moment? Because this moment is all that we ever have. Not being in this moment is the reason why we at times feel unfulfilled and wonder what, why, what, what's the sense of this? What's the value of having a human life? Because if we're caught up in thinking that it's all just about getting things, we're never going to be fulfilled, are we? No matter how much we get, no matter how much we believe in consumerism, we're always going to be disappointed. Even, I mean, there was a time, it was just, just a few years, I was making a lot of money, and I figured that I owed it to myself to get a new car every year. And for two years, I did it, maybe three. But I had the same feeling every time I drove off the lot. And I still remember this one car. I bought a really nice Cutlass Sierra, which was a real piece of junk. It was, I thought it was one of the hottest, coolest cars around. And I, I think it took me like two or three weeks to get. I'm already anticipating it. And I go to Summit, a couple of towns over to get it. And I'm driving off the lot onto Broad Street. And as soon as I hit Broad Street, I think I just lost 20%. I was so caught up in the materiality of this brand new car, I couldn't enjoy it. All I was caught up in was the cost. And then my next thought was, what am I going to get next year? So I'm driving. The first time in my life, you know, I was, I think I was 28, 29. What should have been the biggest accomplishment of my life up until that point. And I was, I, and I was semi-disappointed at best. Because of my eye making, because of my own insanity. Instead of being able to be present. You know, and now... I don't even got to do any of that. I just ease in next to David and take a breath. And I got somebody driving me around. So it's a pretty good deal. It's easy then. Be mindful that this very body too will die and pass away. This is the nature of the world and unavoidable fate. In this way, when we, you feel the gentleness in the Buddha's words and saying that he's not teaching us anything harsh. You're saying you're all going to rot and die. He's just saying be mindful that this very body too will arise and pass away. It's just a consequence of having a human life. There's nothing personal about it. If I couldn't have this incredibly meaningful moment right now, I think I said that, sorry, if I said if I couldn't have, I couldn't have this moment, which is, it truly is wonderful, especially on retreat, if I wasn't willing to have a human body to have the experience. And this is all I know, right? I don't know that I'm going anywhere else. And if I thought I might be, I'm going to be distracted by that, trying to figure out a way to get there. In this moment, I'll be seeking salvation because this life isn't enough. But this life is enough. When you're present for it, when you're present for this moment, because each and every moment is meaningful. It's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for meaning out there or being more than what I can be. And no meaning can be found out there, can we all know that we've all gotten things that we thought we needed or wanted. And it was always disappointing, or at least it didn't give us a common peaceful mind that we thought it might. Why? Because it was a fabrication that we, that we based our contentment on. Excuse me. 
But when we base our contentment on the quality of our mind, we're always content. And how is that? Because in this moment, I don't need this moment to be any different, no matter what's occurring. Well, what happens when something bad happens? The same thing. The same thing that happens when something good happens. I keep breathing. And when I stop breathing, it won't matter if something good or bad is happening at all, is it? And it won't, happen, it won't matter what's in my wallet. And it really won't matter if anybody continues to practice the Dhamma. I hope you all do. But as far as this rotten corpse is, is concerned, it won't matter at all, will it? I will have done what I've done. And I haven't done anything miraculous or heroic, have I? I'm just lucky that you're all here. Really, because I might be sitting in a corner trying to teach this by myself to a dog. <laughs> really, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm sincere when I say that. I love teaching the Dhamma. It is what makes my life so meaningful. Thank you for being here. And I think we all know that, though, don't we? You know, we've experienced the Dhamma, how fortunate we are to have it. Whether we're, we're fortunate enough to be a teacher, I think we have, pretty soon we're going to have way more teachers than we have students, but that's okay. Uh, we're all good teachers. Um, Some of us are going to have to walk the plank. Yeah. Is there going to be a battle royale? <laughs> that's a, yeah, we'll, we'll have a, have a, a, a Dhamma a teacher. I think, I know what we're going to do now. We're gonna, you know how they have those Tibetan uh, uh, debates where they're hopping up and down and screaming? I always love that. We're going to do that here. It's the greatest stories in the world, and the four noble truths are there. It seems a little bit, and again, I, I shouldn't do that. There, there's many people that practice, and they're very sincere. I, it, it always surprises me a little bit. Like, I don't, it, it's a legitimate practice that people find meaningful. <laughs> In this way, one remains mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath. In this way, one remains mindful of the arising and the passing away of the body, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Isn't that wonderful? This is how one remains mindful of the breath and the body. That's the end of our first session. Brian will be picking it up from there. Uh, you're going to do fine. And if not, we're all going to have rotten apples with us. So we'll see. Um, let's go on online first. Slav, I want to hear what you have to say tonight. Welcome, Slav. And can everybody see Slav on here? No. Let me see you. Maybe uh, once he starts talking. Yeah, start talking, Slav. Thank you. Thank you. John is uh, was interesting teaching, and I think <clears throat> Satipatthana Sutta is uh, very straightforward and uh, pointers uh, of Buddha teaching how to uh, jhana uh, meditation to. Uh, restrain our uh, destruction. Thank you. Thank you, Slav. Drake, good to see you tonight. Well, thank you, John. Yeah, I 
I did have a question about uh, calming the bodily for fabrications. Um, and so aware of the in-breath and the out-breath, um, aware of the whole body, calming the bodily fabrications. Um, and it, it sounded like you're suggesting that the tension that we might feel in our body when we're being conscious of our in-breath and our out-breath is actually caused by like a, some kind of subconscious grasping or is there something we can do like some attitude or relationship to being conscious while we breathe that, um, you know, relieves that tension or are we actually yeah. through our own grasping it itself on a subconscious? Yeah. Drake, it's, it's such an important, really a fundamental question. Uh, the, it's it's by being mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath in and of itself without that breath to be any different or really not being distracted by thoughts or feelings that the body bodily fabrications calm it's a, as a consequence of right meditation or jhana practice so it's not there's no intentionality behind it other than the right intention to to engage in jhana practice because anything else if you if you think about that in the framework of the dhamma that wanting anything to be any different, including this meditation session or the way that I'm breathing, or even what I'm feeling, even if it is an, an agitated quality of mind. Jhana practice tells me to just be as it is, just take a breath. And as I continue to do that, bodily fabrications or tension in our body will naturally fall away. But if we do it with any intentionality, we're, we're only going to be creating subtle tension in our body. And it's, it's a very um, uh, subtle distinction, but just the fact that you bring it up shows that you see it and that you recognize that distinction. Right, Craig? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I feel like there's sometimes I, I kind of grab a hold of the prana and it's almost like an addiction. And, and oh, I yeah. Tension in my body. And, and so it sounds like you're suggesting that I just really work on being have the intention to be present and aware, but not manipulate it in any way, not. And yeah. Just... yeah, that's it. So the, the right intention is the intention to recognize craving for and clinging to ignorance of four noble truths or the manifestations of, or the fabrications that arise from that. So again, if you think about that, in this moment, if I want my meditation to be any different than just being mindful of the breath in the body, that is that is me I making. That's a self-referential view, rather than disentangling myself from even the thought that there's something in me that I have to correct or fix or gain. It's just coming back to that sensation of breathing. And so the more that I'm able to do that in jhana meditation, the more I'm able to take it off my cushion. And now when I'm walking about in the world, I'm able to apply that same level of concentration and now refine mindfulness, meaning I don't need, uh, because I'm not trying to resolve bodily issues during meditation, simply learning to accept them as part of my humanity off my cushion. When I find myself getting agitated and I feel it in my body, I will have already trained myself, hopefully not to react. But if I do, I just recognize, okay, I need a little bit more practice. I mean, did that make sense, Drake? 
Yeah, so basically it's about letting go of the idea that needs to be different rather than trying to master some way of breathing that doesn't, um, um, yeah. So is this idea of if you want to be different, um, that's, that's eye making, but if you train yourself to allow everything to be just as it is, yeah. you can be concentrated in a way that when feelings arise from contacts, you don't have to react to it. Yeah. And so that same training that you just um, developed on your cushion is that same uh, quality of mind that you're now able to take out into the world. And the, the Buddha talks about maintaining the refuge of the Dhamma out into the world. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not that we're walking around in our own little bubble and um, uh, immune to what's occurring. But in a sense, we're walking around in our own well-concentrated bubble so that we can respond appropriately to what is occurring in life rather than falling back into becoming entangled in the world again. So through this, through this process that begins on our cushion, we're able to come off our cushion and not have the need to be any different or anything else to be any different. So those of us like myself um, that practice different methods, including uh, pranayama and that type of thing, can have a difficult time not um, wanting to use their breath in that way, even during this. And so what I often suggest is if, if there's another breath practice that's important to you, I don't know if it is or not, Drake, that you, you continue that outside of practice, uh, outside of Dhamma practice and just focus on this method. Um, usually people that do that will then choose one or the other, but, um, no, I, I, don't, I don't have any other practice. Um, oh, good. Yes. But I, I, I don't know exactly how to uh, <coughs> use the breath to concentrate my mind without. Uh, it, it seems like there's like some kind of like skillful engagement, uh, you know, adjusting your posture and notice kind of sweetening your heart trying to give a little more loving kindness if you need it or but it's uh uh but i do notice that if i if i try and sustain ardent mindful clearly knowing while i'm in daily activity i i usually end up creating tension because i i'm using the breath to concentrate but i i kind of feel like well that's better than just letting my mind go into um, unmindful associative things. But I, yeah, that is better. So now this practice, I think, is just going to be um, your, your meditation and your mindfulness will become a little bit more refined as far as recognizing in this moment um, that we talk about this often, that whatever arising that you respond in this way, that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, meaning you're not taking anything personal, but if you do, it's just a matter of reminding yourself that there's nothing personal and there, there can be nothing personal uh, as far as the Dhamma teaches us. Um, it, and it, it takes a while to get into this. It, it, I, I, I can see your sincerity 
um, Drake, it, it's obvious that, that this is something that you're um, committed to and you're putting your whole heart in. It, it's just going to take a little bit of practice, I think, just so you to understand better how to apply this. In other words, I'm, and I'm not saying don't ask any more questions. Please ask questions because it helps everyone. But a, what a lot of what the answer to your question is, you're going to experience that answer instead of just hearing about it from me. So ongoing Dhamma practice is the resolution to some of those things. Makes sense. And maybe, yeah. And I, that, this is what the Buddha, and we, we won't touch on this right now, but I, if you want to talk about this, we can. Um, the Buddha taught in the Ratana Sutta to take refuge in, in the Buddha, the Dhamma. I know you've heard this before and in, in the Sangha, but what it, what it means, and it's usually misunderstood, is we take refuge or, or comfort and safety in the knowing that a human being actually developed this and he left his dhamma that's what we teach here so we're, we're taking comfort and safety in something that is that is rooted in reality not just a um, uh, a salvific wish and we're taking refuge in a well-informed and well-focused sangha meaning it's focused only on what we feel what i feel is what the buddha actually taught and so in so doing these other practices that we may have had in the past um, are resolved here, you know, so you ask a very important question too. Thank you. It gets right to the heart of the matter. Um, let's go out into the room again. I don't think anybody minds being on camera. No, let's start with, with Jennifer in the back, if that's okay. Um, Drake hit exactly on a question that I was going to have for you privately. <laughs> and he just, when I'm when I'm meditating, you know, certain things that are happening, and um, yeah, so I got my answer. Yeah, is <laughs> that how to deal with it? Yeah, you know, in my meditation and in my, you know, yeah, on the cushion and off the cushion. So I have nothing else to ask or add. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you, Drake. Yeah, and, and thank you, Jennifer. That is such an important point. This is how this is how a well-informed and well-focused sangha should work. Yeah. You know, just like that. Yeah. And again, th this whole sutta was it began with just what do we do? Take a breath. You know, yeah. it's all rooted in these four foundations. So. Yeah, I have certain things that are happening. You know, now that I'm back to meditation and committed to doing it um, regularly, and it, I don't know if it's anybody else's experience, but things start to come up. Is that know? anybody else's experience? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that almost you know are trying to pull you away from it. You know, yeah. and um, you know, it can be all kinds of things. And, and um, I have certain things going on and, and it's like, all right, well, you know, maybe I should wait a few minutes and meditate, you know, you know, and the answer is no, we should, we should meditate through it. That's <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, you yeah. know, um, that is when to meditate. Yeah, it's the best so, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I've been approaching it. Everybody has, uh, myself included, for the meditation to be something else, to yeah. be yeah. different mm. than it actually is. Yeah. And not so damn boring. Yeah, and that, that's A, boring, or B, like there are like constant distractions. Yeah. And uh, at some point, you have to realize that those distractions are just going to be there. Yeah, and it's things that I want to work through. Mm -hmm. and what has drawn me to it. 
but at the same time, I'm still holding on to, well, I'll wait till that passes and then I'll meditate, or I'll wait until I'm done with oh, this yeah. and yeah. I'll meditate. And like, no, you should be meditating through this. You know, I'm not going to be able to meditate well right now because this is happening or that's happening. Mm -hmm. Or when it you know. comes up in meditation itself, while you're sitting, the stuff will come up. Yeah. And but and then I hit you know, and then I've hit the like the pause button, you know, on yeah. the screen. Right. Like, yeah. No. You know, you're trying to meditate. This is meditation. Yeah. This is meditation. The distractions is part of meditation. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And the. For myself, I mean, it took me years to, to get out of this, my old patterns of wanting meditation to be this thoughtless space or this yeah. emotionless space. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. This is meditation. Yeah. Things arise, seem to pass away. Yeah. You breathe. Yeah, so I just Period. stick with it, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. That, that is, that's just it. Is yeah. just stay with it, and every time again, it, it, and I whether guess that's where I'll learn, mm -hmm, you know, to use it, you know, when I'm off the cushion mm -hmm. and I'm out in the world and things are popping up, and you know, every time you do it, you're interrupting your own conditioned mind towards staying distracted, yeah, whether it's again on your cushion or off, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer. Mary Beth, good to see you. Mm, good to be here. You were hiding there. I, <laughs> I moved from that seat, so I'm kidding. Okay. Yeah, is it okay? <laughs> I'm fine. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm. I really just happy to be here. Okay. I've missed the sangha. I've missed. I haven't really had much of a practice on my own either. So gonna be my kickstart back right. in. Glad I saw Matt a few weeks ago, or I wouldn't have even known that the uh, retreat was in town. So. Just oh, happy to be here, John. And you, just, then. you know, I, the other thing I'll say is, I mean, I haven't been here, I don't think, before the, since before the pandemic. So like two and a half, that's like just a frame of reference for everything, right? And it's like, same people, <laughs> same people, the same things on the wall. Still These are new. Here. I was just <laughs> But other than that, it's just like, it's awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. Yeah. And so awesome to have you back, really. Yeah. Yeah. As I told Mr. Cater, welcome back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Becky, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi, John. I'm good tonight. Thank you. Um, just very happy Saga to be mom. here. Um, <clears throat> it's always good to talk about the four foundations of mindfulness. Can't hear it too many times. Um, and I just feel that for me, it's going through your, your day or going, going through your, well, I won't say life, but I'll say going through your day because I take it one day at a time. And doing the things that you always do, but not taking any of them personally. Yeah. And nobody, nobody, nobody knows that you have that, that different mindfulness, but you, you know. And there are some days that I can do that. And there are many days that I can't do that. And I noticed that when I can't do it, it's because I've dropped off on my meditation or, but when you're meditating and you're talking about being distracted and especially for me, if it's a busy time of my year, you know, and I, 
I meditate. I say, okay, I'm taking this time, I'm meditating. I, I sit down, I think it's going to be very hard for me to meditate because I have too many things in my head right now. Yeah. But I just do it. And the more you do that, and the more you let that, your mind's going to get distracted. You're going to start thinking about the fact that you have to do X, Y, Z. But then you just come back to that breath. And every time you do that, you learn that all of that other stuff is going to pass away. And you're going to be right here. So keep, keep meditating. <laughs> Whether or not you're distracted. <laughs> Thank you, John. So glad to be back. So glad to be here over my COVID. Good to have you back. <laughs> Welcome back, Sangama. <laughs> Future Dhamma teacher Brian. Hi, friends. Um, yeah, I'm excited for this. This is going to be interesting. I've had an interesting and meaningful few weeks preparing for this. I've been very on top of the four frames of reference the past few weeks. Uh, very insightful, both in a seated form and a receded form and a, a walking form. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested to see what comes out of my mouth tomorrow. So. <laughs> we are. I don't have a script for this. I see we're winging it. Okay. We are. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's your first stand up. Might be my first stand up. Yes, we have this being recorded, right? Um, uh, but I, I did do a dry run earlier this week uh, with some friends. And uh, I don't think it'll be too fair. <laughs> but I promised myself, I, and I told them at dinner, I did not want to think my way through this. I'm going to feel my way through it. So, thank you, tomorrow. Brian. Yes, I don't know if we can get you, Jane. How are you? Are you in there? I can't wait to hear what comes out of Brian's mouth. As my practice deepens, I realize just how much of my life I was out of my mind. Don't be worrying about what's coming up next. Wishing I'd done something different. And that's the best thing that comes from the fact that living in the moment. And I mean, it's exciting. It's just being right here. Don't know what's coming next. And it's, it's okay. Quite a contrast, though, Jane. Oh, my gosh. And you weren't looking for salvation or mystical anything. You were looking for a common peaceful mind. Yeah. Relief. Yeah. You know what I realized? There's no tomorrow. What? There's no tomorrow. Holy. So you're not teaching? <laughs> I'll be teaching now. But not tomorrow. It's all the same day. That's right. Yeah, we talked about teaching, but I used to Grandpa. spend so much time just preparing my teaching. I mean, it, it was just my mind was just so full of stuff. So when the moment came, that stuff was still in there. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't mm. present with the teaching, so it's best to have all that stuff out. Well, I appreciate it. Just, just let, it, let it flow. Yeah. <laughs> I say it's best to have all that stuff out. I love that. All that stuff. All Thank, that you. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Hello, Laura. Hi, John. Thanks so much for hosting this retreat. It's really helpful being here with everybody, listening to everyone. Um, Jennifer and Becky, and, you know what you were saying about and your honesty about, um, you know, well, I don't. I'm afraid to meditate, or maybe I should stop meditating because I'm not in that frame of mind. That's exactly what. 
mean, I've mentioned it to John, but I've been kind of embarrassed to mention it to the song because I just feel like, okay, I've been meditating really that much since I started school. But it's amazing how um, when you two are just talking, I realize no, and, and Ron too, and those are actually the best meditation sessions. I think I'm realizing there's still like this, I don't know if it's like this, Doc photo image I have of like, oh, meditation, it should be like this serene, completely calm, beautiful experience. But it's not like that at all. And maybe that's why when I talk to people, sometimes they say, oh, you know, meditation doesn't work for me, or meditation, you know, isn't for me. And maybe that's just because we have this like idealistic. No, it's just me. It's all me now. Yeah, we're doing exactly. it best we can. So those are the best times and opportunities for meditation because like what Becky was saying, it really builds that um what's the word? Yeah, not mental concentration. Yeah, yeah that concentration <laughs> and that mental um ability because this whole past week, I mean I was concentrated but only on external things. I wasn't focusing on uniting my body and my breath and my brain and it was concentration can make you sick you do it the wrong way because <laughs> i took this exam and it was like i was fully concentrated but then i was so ill after and i'm like i was not uniting my breath and my body i was not i was just out of my mind but so concentrated <laughs> Mm. I was where you are though too. School put me. But it's interesting how the four foundations of mindfulness teaches you now that like wrong concentration. Yeah. The right type of concentration. It's important to see that distinction. Yeah, yeah. I mean you get extreme that... examples in class like, oh, Adolf Hitler or whatever, you know, these people that have they don't have the framework, obviously, of the Eightfold Path, but they're very concentrated, so it can be very... Yeah. yeah. You can apply it in certain ways that aren't very helpful to yourself or humanity. I mean, I was... I had great mindfulness for many, many years. It was just wrong mindfulness. It was, where am I getting my next drink or drug? Yeah. But that's mindfulness. That, you know, modern the modern <laughs> world worships mindfulness now. Like, it's, like it's, mindfulness is a good thing. It's not. You know, we can hold in mind anything. What we hold in mind is what's most important. You know, we'll determine our, you know, our life experience. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you're here tonight. Almost done with Teacher Mary. <laughs> um, I think about anything I wanted to say. So what everyone's saying is really helpful and very honest about you know, validating the practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what you concentrate on, you, you will become, you know, mm -hmm. to have the right frame. And, um, you know, everything comes back to the Eightfold Path. And that's the story. You're living your life through the Eightfold Path to guide you through those things. And then all these other little stories are another way to come back to the Eightfold Path over mm -hmm. and over again. So. Um, it's just pretty amazing. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mary.
Julia. Thank you, John. Um, Did I forget something? Teaching. I also didn't really think about much to say. I didn't know I was next. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works, huh? Yeah. Impermanence. Um, and a tricky teacher. I've recognized since I've been practicing that when I'm having conversations with people in my life that, um, which I'm guilty of as well, um, not being fully present with the person, like I haven't seen my mom in a few weeks and, or maybe like a month or so. And I go and I see her and, you know, she's so excited to see me, but then is on the phone, but then is doing this and doing that. And it's like, I, I can't, like I'm feel so far away from her yeah. when I'm like two feet away from her. Um, and I'm recognizing that I've been feeling that way with many people actually. But I also realized when I go visit someone, I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm recognizing that I'm feeling anxious in the moment. So then I'll, I'll go do something as well. So it's like, I'm recognizing what I do yeah. like in other people. Um, and it's just easier to see in other people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then I'm, I'm like, huh, you know, I just grabbed this. Like, I didn't need that. I didn't need Skaterade. Like, I'm not even thirsty. Like, whoa. so it, it was kind of just like, I'm feeling anxious. So I'm escaping from the moment by doing or grabbing something. Yep. Um, but I recognize, but I'm not doing it harshly. I'm recognizing that I'm doing it and I allow myself to do it because I'm like, I recognize that it's okay. I'm gonna, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, the first. Exactly. The first part is recognition. Yeah. yeah, and um, also I've noticed, you know, when I'm entangled in the world, I have more. I mean, you know, it makes sense that we're needing things or someone or something to be different than it than it is in that moment. But when I'm entangled with the world, I have many more needs. It seems yeah. like, you know. So then I'm getting confused at the fact of like, when is it? when is it acceptable to accept to express my needs if I'm actually trying to um, not expect anything to be different than what it is or need anything to be different than what it is or someone to be different in my life when then where's that line of where I'm expressed the need then or should I just accept everything that's happening and just remove myself from you know from situations that are unacceptable to me yeah there's a so fine like, line that concentration gives you the ability to recognize situations that are simply unacceptable for you to be in and you leave them you leave them peacefully um but there's sometimes when it can seem like um you give somebody a 20 they're supposed to give you change for a 20 and they give you change for a 10. it's not eye making to say i think you, you know, I think you made a mistake but if that person insists that they didn't and you, you hit them over the head because, you know, you know, then you're then you're <laughs> caught up. You're entangled, right? You're entangled in the world. But, so it was your reaction and you're taking it personally, a person making a, a mistake, whether it was on, pur on purpose or not. It's none of my business. Right. And again, just using maybe a silly scenario to, to show how we can get caught up in the world and we can take a breath and, you know, and deal with it in that way. And you might even get to the point where you realize, is it worth me continuing to lose my mind over this 10 bucks as this person insists they didn't take? And mm -hmm. That's happened to me where I, I realize it's not worth, you know, it just isn't. So mm -hmm. I, I, 
Uh, a practical example, I, I get a lot of stuff from Amazon because I, I, I don't drive. So um, I mean, you know, just about everything either comes from Amazon or that Grand Union delivery thing. And they just started a policy of charging it to, to send a return, to have UPS pick it up. And I thought this has to be a mistake. An online company can't start charging to return stuff that it turns out that they can. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it became very apparent that I could get irate over over this, or I could say, oh, I just lost eight bucks. And chances are in the next few minutes, something will happen to put that eight bucks back in my pocket. So I said, thanks for your help. And I don't know. <clears throat> so again, just using an example of how we can get caught up in the world or not in the same situation. And um, interpersonal relationships, it, it, it's a little more difficult, but it's still the same thing. If I'm trying to manipulate somebody to get something that I need that they're not willing to give me, I've just mm -hmm. taken that person hostage, haven't I? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, we have what we call it taking people hostage is their word for it. But taking something, taking people emotionally hostage is the same thing. So if I walk around in the world needy, I'm always looking for someone to fulfill that need. If I don't need anything, then I can meet people equally. I don't, I don't need anything from anybody, do I? And then in the situation, it's just a matter of an interpersonal relationship, then have the opportunity to become one that is characterized by generosity rather than uh, or people always trying to get what they need. You know, I, I shouldn't have to depend on anybody to give me what I need, should I? Should I put it on, on you or you or you to, to fulfill my needs? I mean, I'm talking about my emotional needs, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, you know, I need somebody to pick me up. I'm fortunate to have David do it. Um, you know, so I get I get my needs met, but it's not, you know, I don't see myself as in, I guess I do see myself as a needy, but no. <laughs> I don't need David to have to pick me up. Just, I mean, you know, if, if I didn't get here, it'd be okay. It doesn't matter what is really what I'm saying. There's not, there's not a scenario that's worthwhile getting entangled with, no matter what it is, is it? Another way of saying that, is there anything in the world that's worth me losing my mind over? No. I mean, I worked hard to keep my mind lost for years and years and years. It wasn't easy getting it back, but now that I have it back, I'm going to keep it, at least for the next breath, and then we'll see. Does that answer your very, very insightful question? Yeah. yeah. No, that was great. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Julie. Let's go to space. This first. thing's turning, mm -hmm. turn, it was low, let's put on low power mode because. Oh, uh, well. It almost made it through. <laughs> you know what? I got to go ahead and talk, Rob. I got a battery I can put on there. Maybe we'll keep it going on. Do you want the charging cable? Is there one there? I can just turn the camera though. That's, yeah, it's on yeah. your side, I think. That's it? Oh, nice picture. What's the code? Your Amazon package, your social security. Yeah. <laughs> oh, watch this. If that warrant oh, there comes up. <laughs> I don't know why you want to know. I don't take it personally. People are looking for me. Well, you're frozen. I'm still alive. Oh. There, so look up we're good. Um yeah, there, there's this 
these interpersonal relationships um, require a lot of what's my call it finesse. Very delicate <laughs> um, judgment as to you know where that that line between need and need and want is. Yeah. Um, it's easy to um, to get on the wrong track there. Yeah, um, yeah I, I've, I've been accused a few times of not fulfilling somebody else's needs. Um, and it, it took me some time to recognize, you know, um, where where uh, where the Dharma puts me there, yeah, and it's I'm not pretty much at peace with with you know if I can't fulfill somebody else's needs, then you know that's that's just uh, how things are. You know, if I can you know help somebody out, great. Yeah. Um, are you saying when you someone is a, either um, overtly or covertly expressing a need to you, and you feel a need just because they're expressing that that you feel like you have to fulfill that? Yeah. Um, no. And it, I used to be. You know, I, I would feel guilty if I if I didn't fulfill yeah. that. And um, with with enough concentration and, and, and insight in the situation, um, it's now much more of a, a voluntary thing. If, you know, if I can help you out, um, great, you know, I'll be happy to do that. But um, don't make me, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but that, that too is, is a, is a, a is a um, you know you can easily get into a um, a, a reverse um, not fulfilling somebody's need just to make a point. Yeah, that's called aversion. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the dominant you got to be careful. It's very subtle. But it doesn't mean in the it doesn't mean in relationships that we don't fulfill other people's needs. It's mm -hmm. just not the reason why we're there. Right. You know, again, we don't we don't become these these cold stoic turds sitting in a corner. I mean, you know, we're in a relationship to be in a relationship. So, a, a healthy relationship, whether it's in the Dharma or not, but hopefully within the Dharma, it's characterized by just constant great generosity. Right. But it's because it, it's generosity that comes from from who you really are. You, you can't mm -hmm. give something that you don't own, even though you might try, yeah. right? Which, which is really why fulfilling someone else's need is stressful because we really don't want to where we really can't, but we're trying. But again, in, in the, the, um, the true gentleness in a relationship comes out of generosity anyway, doesn't it? Yeah. So, which is the opposite of me trying to get my needs filled, filled all the time, mm -hmm. you know? It, it, uh, and it was, I mean, any any romantic relationship I ever had, for that matter, never worked while I was trying to get what I needed. Never did. But it always worked when I was trying to find out what the other person needed. 
I didn't, took me a long time to learn that lesson. Though, mm-hmm. that there, was some, there was some yeah. valuable, right. something valuable, valuable in just making someone else happy because you're there. Right. There always, to me, there always had to be a payoff for it. Yeah. And when there isn't that greed and aversion coming from your side, it's much easier to just be present for someone. Yeah, because you don't need a payoff from mm-hmm. them. You know, which is, you know, in those kind of relationships, usually one thing, which really that gets, that can be really tedious, if not quite off-putting at times. We'll leave it at that. So, thank you, Rob. Again, this is, the Dhamma is about how to live in the world in a very practical and effective gentle and calm way yeah. by understanding. We lost the Chromebook. Well, we can do this. Um, let's go to Jen. Dharma teacher Jen. Oh, hi. There you are. Um, so the teaching is be mindful of the in-breath, be mindful of the out-breath while abandoning craving and clinging to what is occurring. What is occurring in meditation is, if it's not mindfulness of the breath, is mental fabrications and bodily fabrications. Yeah, one or the other, right? Mm -hmm. And craving and clinging is wanting them those bodily fabrications or those mental fabrications to be different abandoning think of what this what we just said a fabrication we want a fabrication right yeah (laughs) that's that's yeah yeah it's crazy isn't it it's right and abandoning bodily fabrications no abandoning craving and clinging to bodily fabrications is Calm. returning the mindfulness to the breath. Yes, yes, yes. Because yes. you can't be mindful of the breath action. and mindful of the bodily fabrication. You can be, but you can't be caught up in the bodily fabrication or the mental fabrication. And by caught up, I mean, where is it coming from? How can I move it? You know, what? how do I release this tension? Whatever yep. it is, any of that is craving and clinging to the bodily fabrication so the only thing to do is to come back to the breath yeah the only thing to do and the more often that you practice coming back to the breath and recognizing mental and bodily fabrications on the cushion you can do that off the cushion yes and when you do it off the cushion that means that you recognize bodily fabrications and mental fabrications arising when you're having a conversation with yeah. a loved one. And you can do that, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you can do it. Those bodily fabrications come up and that is us reacting to something somebody that we love is saying to us. Mm-hmm. And in that reaction, if we can allow it to move through us then we can skillfully even communicate what that bodily fabrication was to our loved ones so that they start to understand us and how we're wired a little better so that they don't trigger us or whatever you know that and that's that's like having a real intimate authentic understanding with somebody when you can 
own what's coming up, like own right there in that moment. Like, oh man, I'm really struggling with what you're saying to me right now. John Hassel, you do it to me all the time. I could. (laughs) (laughs) I tried my best. And I love you. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I just like, that's what was bought. That's what was bouncing around while I was listening to everybody talk. Right. Yeah. And that just, your mind is blown that I've spent this much time meditating and I kind of know, but now it's like a serious aha moment because I do have these bodily things that happen, you know, sometimes it is bodily reactions Mm -hmm. while I'm Mm -hmm. meditating and I'm very confused on what to do about it. Are you now? Come back to the breath. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why it's a long person. No, that's what that's what Donald practice is about. That that you have those. It seems like a a simple understanding, isn't it, Jennifer? But it's very powerful. It's very profound. And And it could help me for the past fifteen years. Well, it's going to help you now. You know, I mean, yeah. You know, don't clean crepe today. Right. You can't live then. You can only live now. Yeah. So good for you for realizing that. Thank you. Thank you, Donna Teacher Jen. Donna Teacher David. How are you, Donna Teacher David? Good idea to help keep what this practice is about is to always roll back to the four little truths. Because not to know what your meditation is about means you need to understand the first little truth. Not to do so, you might find some comfort or answers, but it won't be sustained. And it's wrong intention, wrong view. So each meditation should really start with before you sit. What am I sitting for? What's your intention? What's your intention? Said that nicely. Yeah. You all did. Thank you, David. Dama teacher Kevin. Nice to be here with everybody. Good to have you. Really appreciate all the contribution and just to follow what David said, you know, what are we practicing for? Matt said this a lot, and it's we're practicing for calm. And and we've kind of described uh, how we become familiar with calm, you know, when stress arises in the mind or the body. We, we have a way to orient ourselves. You know, we have a way to to let that dissipate. And it's, it's probably the most natural thing we can do, but a lot of times when we're attached in the world or we're following thoughts, fabrications, bodily or otherwise, we forget. And that's part of being a that's part of being in this life. You're going to forget. But that's why we're all here. That's why we all continue to practice. When we forget to practice, I appreciate what you said, Laura, as, as I have, you know, follow, we're, we're concentrated, but we're not calmly concentrated. We're, we're, we're just mm-hmm. out there 
going through the motions, looking like we're supposed to be, yeah. looking like we know what we're doing, right? We're, we're still waters running deep, right? But um, Becky, you said that, you know, we, we know this feeling. We're becoming more familiar with it. Every time you sit, every time you come to class, every time you hear this bald guy talk. <laughs> Stop it. Thank you very much for all of that. And appreciate that. Thank you, Dama Teacher Kevin. So glad you're here and uh, saved my our co-founder for last, Dama Teacher Matt. Thanks, John. Really good to be here with everybody and uh, <clears throat> go through the Satipatthana again in this retreat setting. It's very powerful. Yeah. Um, everything that everyone's saying is is really um, demonstrating how good of a teacher John is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You all owe me your awakening. You know, and I, you know, David said it well, that this comes to the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is everything. This is... <laughs> As a consequence of having a human life, there is stress, yep. there is disappointment, there is distraction, there is bodily um, fabrications, mental, mental fabrication, yeah. verbal fabrications, bodily fabrications, there is what? craving what and clinging, all those things. And as Dhamma practitioners and householder Dhamma practitioners, that we are not going to escape that. So just the fact that we can, out of our 20 minute sit or our 10 minute sit or our five minute sit or our 45 minute sit, I said this to Ram years ago, even if we come back to our breath one time in that amount of time, when we recognize that we've gotten caught up in our thinking and we return our mindfulness to the breath and the body, even if that happens one time, that's meditating. Yeah. I remember that. Remember that? Every meditation. Every <laughs> I do one. too. He said it to me. And well, I remember that's important too. to remember every yeah. If we're not, we should. That's, meditation is just that one breath. Yeah. Every, everything else is just mm -hmm. getting ready to meditate. Now I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. Really. I mean, it, it sounds kind of silly to say it that way. but And we, Matt said it. We've, we've said it a few. I said it a few times. That's our life right here. Moment by moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, it's, that's, for householder Dhamma practitioners, that's, that's, that's what Dhamma practice is. Dhamma practice isn't about getting what you want. You know, Dhamma practice isn't about feeling good all the time. Not getting what you don't want or being something. It's about recognizing that you got caught up in your thinking and returning your mindfulness to your breath and your body. And if you can do that, then you're practicing the Dhamma. And that's why we're all here, and that's what we're here to do, and, and that's what we've learned. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, if, if you can integrate the Eightfold Path, that's just what you can do. So I'm going to put you on a spot this time, Matt. How has your... Uh, your deepening concentration and integration of the Eightfold Path 
affected your family life? If I can ask you to talk personally. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I accept not being able to get what I want all the time. <laughs> 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 it, 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 it sounds almost snide, but you don't I mean, mean it that really way, Matt. So that, that is everything, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, there, there could have been a lot of angst in that, but you really want, you were maybe being a little joking, but you were making a point that that's what it is, is you aren't taking it personal. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's those things when, you know, it's always in context, right? So certain things, certain things in family life are very intense and certain things are very ordinary and certain things have more charge in them than other things and integrating the Eightfold Path into my life and developing right meditation through jhana and stability of mind and concentration makes it so I can be okay with not getting what I want all the time. And when I do get what I want sometimes, <laughs> so that's okay too. Rarely. I have a deep, deep respect for the impermanence. <laughs> <laughs> I would characterize all of that by saying you've learned how to give more love and you're getting a lot more love, aren't you? Yeah. Why else be involved in it? Yeah. Why else be involved in our lives, really? You know, I'm, if I'm you can't, you know, ten years ahead of of um, of Matt in, in in that in 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 the family, uh, you know, in, in that. We're talking about right speech here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know. I, I wish I'd had the Dharma with me when when I was at this stage now. Yeah. That that because it's it is intense. <laughs> it is intense, you know. And at that point you have, I don't know, 15, 20 years of marriage behind you, you know, that adds intensity to that already. Yeah. Um, you know, to do that with the Dharma, you know, is uh, is a huge help. Yeah, definitely. Huge. And you don't need to be the perfect practitioner to no. reap a lot of benefits there. Right. Yeah. And again, that that this is where really it's most important that it resolves and resides here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because life is a, whether it's a uh, a family relationship or romantic relationship or just our ordinary relationships that we have. That's life, isn't it? Life is defined by our relationships, whether it's our, my relationship with myself or my relationship with other people. It, my life isn't defined by my relationship to trees and you know the kind of things that I like to look at. The quality of my life is determined by how I relate to you, right? And if not, if, if I'm unsuccessful in that way, I haven't learned how to live a human life, so have I? It's easy. Thomas Merton said it. You know, it's okay to go up to the top of a mountain and meditate for ten years, as he did. But when he came down, he says it was so important 
to come down off the mountaintop and bring it to the marketplace, meaning go out into the world. Or all of that is just an escape, isn't it? And so this isn't. This teaches us how to do what Matt did, just describe. You know, to be so generous that all you're doing is giving love and getting love. It just keeps going around and around. Thank you, Matt. Um, we'll finish with meta as we always do, but uh, I just need a little bit more camera time to satisfy my ego personality. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we, we're going to start tomorrow at nine with Qigong. Um, and it's nice enough. We'll probably be outside. Uh, we've got our, our first class is 10 o'clock with Brian. I think lunch is probably around 12. Um, to the, we're going to the bridge for lunch, correct? And then we'll go to Bamboo House around five. Is that good? I told them, or should it be a little earlier, maybe? I thought it was later than that. I think it, I think we had said five because there's a session after that, correct? Yeah, let's keep oh, it. I, okay. Yeah, I told right. them five and they said, good, we'd rather you get here early anyway. Yeah, They're going to give us that back room again. So, mm -hmm. all right. So that's that's the loose schedule. Mateo is going to be teaching the 2.30 session uh, from Scotland, as I said. Uh, and then Mary's going to grace us with her teaching on Sunday morning. Um, so we'll finish with Meta as we always do. Do your best to maintain this um the refuge that we've established here and as best as you can stay disentangled from the folks that you'll encounter once we leave here. So again, find your relaxed meditation posture and take a moment to unite your mind and your body by being mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And these are the, ooh, I gotta find it. these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutra. Good. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, John. See you all tomorrow. Thank Peace. You.
Thank you, Drake. See you in the morning. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.